A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It has been a very big week for the naughty COVID disinformation brigade. The clampdown on so-called hatred or hate speech actually green lights hatred. These people have to live in the real world, not in Ed Miliband's windmills of your mind. It's completely mad. The Swedes have finished their COVID inquiry. The Italians have finished their COVID inquiry. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The benefits of lockdown were, quotes, a drop in the bucket compared to the costs, end quotes. No, that's not a reference to what Alison and I were telling Planet Normal listeners back in the summer of 2020, just a few months into the pandemic lockdown. That drop in the bucket quotation comes from a landmark study conducted by scientists at Washington's John Hopkins University, one of the world's most respected medical schools, together with the highly prestigious Lund University in Sweden. Researchers say draconian measures taken in spring 2020 had, quote, negligible impact on COVID mortality compared with lighter-touch countries. Lockdown saved as few as 1,700 lives in England Wales in spring 2020, according to this study, which concluded the benefits of the policy were a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs imposed. Is this vindication, Alison? Well, let's discuss. Because to my mind, vindication makes me feel sad rather than smug. There's lots to discuss. This lockdown report, Keir Starmer's bust-up with the unions over net zero policy, and anti-royalist Jacinda Ardern accepting a royal gong. But let's start with proceedings at the High Court, because a certain young man has been giving evidence, having jetted in from the States. Less at the young. He's 38. He may carry on like Kevin the teenager. Young compared to us. <laughs> He's young compared to us. He's old enough to know better. Big enough and ugly enough. Before we go into that dreary, pathetic spectacle, let's just quote from the film I, Robot, Will Smith playing Detective Del Spooner. Somehow I told you so just doesn't quite say it. That's where we are, Halligan, isn't it, really? But I, I don't feel good about it. I just feel sad. Do you? Yeah. I prefer you when you're smug, actually. <laughs> it's my natural state. <laughs> it is your natural state. <laughs> Why are we feeling sad? It's just ridiculous, honestly. Everything we knew now, the air is full of vultures coming home to roost. Because this was the biggest policy mistake yeah. in British peacetime history. Yes. To my mind. It completely was. Are we going to do a bit of Harry? So how do you think he's getting on? He hasn't got much of a case, has he? He seems to be saying, look, I didn't like this, so the law yeah. courts have to rule on my side, but he doesn't seem to have the evidence. Well, I think he and the Duchess, <laughs> megalomania, as I christened her yesterday, megalomania and Harry, they uh, they live in a, in a world of their truths, not the actual truth, Liam. So when their truths bump up against facts, it's never going to go well, is it really? It's a bit of bumper cars. Look, I said in my column this week, the tabloid papers did and have behaved disgustingly over the years. We know that they illegally intercepted phone calls, hacked into voicemails of Millie Dowler, missing young woman, later found to have been murdered. Atrocious behaviour. I do think it has improved a lot post-Leveson. I don't know what you think. I think there are far fewer stings in the tabloid press. But I'm afraid that Prince Harry, you know, I think he feels that so on the moral high ground that he needs breathing apparatus to come down to talk to the plebs. But he just has lost any moral authority, Liam, as far as I'm concerned. I don't regard him as a royal. He announced himself in court as fifth in line to the throne. This is someone who makes a lot of his sort of egalitarian tendencies, but scratch the surface and he's just a rotten old snob, isn't he? And he is accusing people, describing Paul Burrell, Princess Diana's former butler, as, you know, as a 
two-faced shit. Well, I mean, I think Prince Harry is in contention for that award as well, isn't he? Because he blames people for selling gossip about the royals and and his main source of income now is uh, selling gossip about the royals. So not very impressed, Halligan, here. I do think he's guilty of overreaching. I do think he's guilty of putting into court, putting into a kind of legal context what is basically a row with the press, where the press can't be proved to have done anything that's unlawful. I mean, who knows? You and I don't know if the press did do things that are unlawful. They may have done, they may not have done. No, that's not right. We know that Mirror Group has previously settled for what is believed to be a hundred million pounds. I meant with regard to this new case. But certainly there's historic bad behaviour, isn't there? There certainly is, but you know, double jeopardy and all the rest of it, Magna mm. Carta. So has he got any actual evidence to stand up the accusations that he's currently making? I don't know. I've been keeping an eye on these court hearings and what he's been saying and the comments that have been coming from the High Court, and it strikes me that he doesn't, but we shall see. Mm. But I am concerned about the guy. You know, I don't wish him ill. He does seem to have got himself into a point where he's very, very angry, estranged from his family. He's spending more time in the UK on this court case than he was on his own father's coronation. I did think he made rather a sad spectacle during that coronation. And I wonder genuinely where this is going to end up for Harry if indeed this court case does fail and indeed end up in humiliation. There may be no other word for what he is about to endure. That's certainly what legal sources tell me on current evidence. You're being a bit tender-hearted, aren't you? I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't lack resources or connections. I mean, basically everything he has is based on an accident of birth. I'm a monarchist because I think constitutional monarchy is the most stable system for our country. But I think when somebody like him starts behaving like this, gets up in court and says that the government of the country and the media have hit rock bottom, it's not his place to be pronouncing on the government as a royal, albeit an exiled one. He's not supposed to pass any kind of political comment at all. So, no, I really think we've got more things to worry about. And I think there's certainly a lot of people who don't have his advantages, who have also survived very difficult upbringings, who've, you know, had to put things behind them and just get on with life and and make the best future for themselves and their children. I also note, and this really does great, that whilst kicking the institution and, you know, for its racism or its unconscious bias, (laughs) Elizabeth II, when we think of that great queen, we automatically reach for the phrase unconscious bias, don't we? So having, you know, dobbed in his grandparents, been absolutely foul, he clings on to the titles prince and princess for his own children. So talking the talk, but not walking the walk. I don't mind the fact that he's going to be humiliated, but I just wonder how capable he is of dealing with that humiliation. Let me put it like that. Yeah, I don't think he's going to like the idea that he's wrong. And having been brought up surrounded by people who say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, it's going to be a bit of a shock. Precisely. But coming back to your intro, co-pilot, it has in a very big week for the naughty COVID disinformation brigade. People who dared to suggest that lockdown might be a tad counterproductive. That may be thee and me. But as you said, you referenced that big report from Johns Hopkins and Lund University. I mean, we know all this stuff really, but You know, it's good to see it written down. Draconian measures had only a negligible impact on COVID mortality, policy failure of gigantic proportions. Lockdowns prevented just 0.2% of deaths in comparison with places like Sweden, where simply trusting people to do the right thing seemed to have worked almost as well. Plus, they thought that lockdown might actually have caused more deaths by stopping people from going out of doors. You know, this is one of, this is one of my main themes, isn't it, co-pilot? Yeah. The idea that they said we could only take one form of exercise outside a day when Anders Tegnell in Sweden basically told Swedes to be outside as much as possible. So we have this, you know, terrible 
picture now emerging of the detrimental impact of lockdown on children's health, on education, on the NHS, as we know, on economic growth, 400 billion down the drain. But it's interesting. I think one of the big things of this week, we saw two big pieces in the Telegraph, a piece about that survey. And just as we are seeing this mountain of evidence emerging about how dreadful lockdown was, we also discover via a Telegraph expose that the government was involved in suppressing the very people who were rightly, as it turns out, raising objections. Now, this was a big story, government covertly monitoring lockdown critics, possibly including us, using artificial intelligence to do that. Social media firms, we think, may have used technology to stop certain posts being promoted. And there was a thing called the Counter Disinformation Unit, a suitably Orwellian title and a counterpart in the Cabinet Office. And some posts were removed from social media altogether following meetings of the Counter Disinformation Policy Forum. Now, this unit was flagging discussions about lockdown policies and criticism, and the Telegraph produced documents which showed, Liam, that British citizens, including highly respected scientists and former Planet Normal guests like Professor Carl Hennigan, campaigners like Molly Kingsley, my dear friend Molly Kingsley, a mum, a lawyer, founder of Us for Them to campaign for children during the pandemic, they had their posts monitored. And before I hand over to you, let's just think about the fact that Molly Kingsley, mother of two little girls, a lawyer, respectable member of the community, was spied on by her own government in an attempt to curtail discussion of coronavirus policies and articles that Molly had written for the Daily Telegraph, edited by our own staff, articles cautioning against school closures, the wearing of face masks in classrooms and the vaccination of children had been flagged up by the Counter Disinformation Unit, which was set up by ministers originally to tackle supposed domestic terrorist threats. Absolutely horrifying. We do need to distinguish between this John Hopkins Lund study and also the Telegraph's piece, as you say, yeah. which relied on freedom of information requests, an excellent piece of work by our investigations team and our Whitehall correspondent, Tony Diver, highlighting this counter disinformation unit. What I think is really scary is how the government collaborated with the tech giants, with the likes of Facebook yeah. and Twitter, yeah. to marginalise and discredit the likes of Professor Carl Hennigan, uh, an Oxford professor, the likes of Molly, as you say, probably even the likes of us as well, Alice. And we mm. do need to find out the extent to which our work was discredited yeah. and basically removed from the public square by these social media giants, belying us the ability to connect with people who had chosen to follow us mm. based on our previous journalistic work and broader reputation. It really is Orwellian, as you say. It really is concerning. And I've highlighted in the past the way the statist proclivities of lockdown haven't ebbed away. So we went in lockdown from roughly 40% of our GDP was taxed to 53, 54, 55% in 2020, 2021. Instead of the state going back to 40% of GDP, we're back at 45, 46%. It's as if the state doesn't want to give up the power that it has purloined during lockdown. And I do wonder, beyond these freedom of information requests, whether or not the culture of the state will be to relinquish this power that it's got. Will it stop controlling social media? Will it stop marginalising particular journalists? You know, we are the Daily Telegraph. We are the Sunday Telegraph. This yes. is the biggest broadsheet newspaper in the United Kingdom. Yes. And we're quoting many times tenured professors at the world's leading universities. We were talking to people like Jay Bhattacharya, Shinetra Gupta from Stanford, not Oxford respectively, Martin Koldorf from Harvard. We were giving these people a platform based on their massive world-class knowledge of what was going on at a time when the world was at a crossroads. How do we respond to this virus 
not in the early weeks when we didn't know what it was. It could have been smallpox. But once we realized that it wasn't, and once we realized the extent to which it affected people of different ages and didn't affect people of different ages, the whole idea of more discretionary shielding, of a more moderate response, different from complete lockdown, was blown out of the water, not least by the inability of people like us to really push through because the government and the tech giants between them were stopping us from having our say. And far more importantly, Alison, stopping us from asking sensible questions from world-leading experts. It's completely mad. From doing journalism, basically. I mean, we know that the trade of journalism did not emerge with great credit from that period. It it fills me still with a really strange feeling to think that, you know, a profession I belong to was not asking the questions which we in our own... I I wish we'd had more power, Liam. I wish we'd had more influence. I think at least we can say that we did as much as we could. And I think, I don't know if I said this to you before, but I'm not a physically courageous person. You're a much more physically courageous person than I am, but I have a little bit of moral courage and I'm very, very glad, proud, will always be proud that, you know, us and listeners that we did our absolute best. But the situation, as far as I can see now, as we discovered from the Telegraph just in the last 24 hours, that Oliver Dowden, the mild-mannered little Oliver Dowden, looks a bit like Stan Laurel, now the Deputy Prime Minister, he was in charge during the pandemic as the culture secretary of this disinformation or counter-disinformation unit set up or extended to start tackling COVID disinformation in March 2020. And let's close down all the people who are asking whether any of this is a good idea, pouncing on people, wondering about the wisdom of vaccinating children. I mean, Completely, I'm 100% confident that in future people will turn around and say the mass vaccination of the population against a virus which only posed a lethal threat to the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions was an error, okay? So it may only have had rare side effects, rare deaths, but people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s who didn't need it necessarily have suffered and so on. And it's very, very bad. But it was very interesting, apart from that the CDU, this disinformation unit, not only logging information about the likes of us and Molly and Carl, but Conservative MP David Davis, <laughs> noting David as highly critical of the government with the majority of comments. Listen to this, criticising Imperial College and blaming X personally for lockdown. It says that the disclosure is not linked to David Davis's specific comment, but it came five days after Mr Davis had co-written a piece for the Telegraph criticising the Imperial College London scientist Neil Ferguson's modelling. Of course, he was criticising Neil Ferguson's modelling. So an elected MP in liberal democracy is being censored by a government counter-disinformation unit for criticising a scientist. And just to finish... That the Telegraph also found that Michelle Donnellan, who is Oliver Dowden's successor at the Culture Department. Now, Michelle tried to have this unit shut down, Liam, after she yeah. took over. She was uncomfortable that the unit was flagging social media posts by British citizens that were neither disinformation nor misinformation. I'm very glad that we've actually got a member of the Cabinet who is uncomfortable that we have a unit which would be better off based in Beijing or the former East Germany. I mean, it's just diabolical. And you're right, they're not going to go, are they? They're not going to give it up. They're not going to give it up. No. And just as this stuff is coming out, just as this Johns Hopkins report's coming out, just as The Telegraph is doing this journalism, the entire media establishment is disappearing down this wormhole of whose WhatsApp messages are going to be released. And, oh, Rishi doesn't want to release them. And Boris kind of wants to release them. Has he outmaneuvered the Cabinet Office? It's completely mad. The Swedes have finished their COVID inquiry. (laughs) The Italians have finished their COVID inquiry. Even the Italians. (laughs) Sorry to all our Italian friends, guys, but you're not known for sort of rapid bureaucracy. (laughs) And yet you finished your COVID inquiry after being at the absolute forefront of when COVID happened, of course, those 
ghastly pictures from Northern Italy, given the industrial connections between Northern Italy and China. And the the Italians have finished their COVID inquiry. We haven't even started ours and we spent 100 million quid. And now the media is going into a meltdown about a bunch of WhatsApp messages before the testimony of a single person has even been heard. So what's the betting on how long this inquiry will take? Will it be seven years as the Chilcot inquiry Mm. took? Will it be 12 years as the bloody Sunday inquiry took? It could be even longer and it will become ridiculous because who's to say we won't have another pandemic before then? I think if there is another pandemic, we'll get into a situation where the public will basically tell the ruling class, naff off. We are not listening to you. And that is significantly a very dangerous situation too. That's what I really worry about. The political and media class has now disrupted and foregone its ability to talk to people and be trusted because it's made such a mess, not just of lockdown itself, but also interrogating what we did during lockdown. You know, one of my legendary rants this week was based on the news that Jacinda Ardern, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, has become a dame, Liam, and why not? <laughs> and it's literally, I couldn't have been more pleased if Nicola Sturgeon had been made a dame. What we are seeing, and I think this is at this time when, as we've said, all the harms of lockdown are firmly coming home to roost. And what we are seeing is people involved in the pandemic who were very often on the wrong side of things, as we now know, and they're all being garlanded, knighthoods here, damehoods there. So Chris Whitty gets the knighthood, while Carl Hennigan, who was actually arguing for the UK's pandemic plan, (laughs) is spied on by agents of the state for disinformation. Now, the disinformation was the plan. Everything that was called COVID disinformation was the UK's pre-existing pandemic plan. Now, try and get your head around that. People were being censored and spied on for actually supporting what had always been official policy, which must have been approved by Sir Chris Whitty. We will come back to this in future weeks, Alison. Again, it doesn't feel to me like vindication. I just feel sad that this is the situation we're in because I genuinely believe now that our political and media class collectively made such a mess of this that a lot of ordinary people won't listen to them when we have another pandemic. And that's a very dangerous situation. You know, I I tip my hat to the likes of Shinetra Gupta, to Molly Kingsley, to Carl Hennigan and other lockdown heroes. If Planet Normal listeners who aren't regular listeners want to hear from some of those, just a few months ago we did a Lockdown Heroes two-part special, didn't mm. we, where we heard from the people we've mentioned, Jonathan Sumption, Carol Sikora, the fabulous oncologist and so on. We weren't doing anything that was particularly journalistically special. We were just open-minded and we listened to people like Macmillan Cancer Trust. We listened to people from the front line of the NHS who were contacting us and talking to us anonymously and bravely about what was really going on. We just had the courage to convey their messages when many of our colleagues in journalism had their fingers in their ears and were saying, la, la, la. And someone else, so I think, just to finish, who's saying la, la, la at the moment is Keir Starmer. I think it's really interesting what's happening since Keir Starmer unveiled his new policy for the North Sea to ban all new investment in oil and gas. There's been a hell of a backlash from major trade unions. You've had the GMB, the third biggest trade union in the country, saying that Labour's policies on the North Sea are incoherent and dangerous. You've had Sharon Graham, who, of course, is the head of Unite, the second biggest trade union in this country. Both these unions, major bankrollers of Labour, Sharon Graham, comparing Labour's plans to just ban all new investment in the North Mm. Sea. The UK's oil and gas complex, of course, employs upwards of 200,000 people in Aberdeen, across Scotland and across the country, not least in our ports and associated industries. You've had Sharon Graham comparing Labour's policy with the Tory policy to close down all coal mines in the (laughs) 80s, which, of course, is 
ideologically like nuclear waste to the Labour Party. Really incredible. And now you've had Keir Starmer on Monday go to the GMB conference in Brighton and say, oh, it's okay. I accept that we're going to be using oil and gas quotes far, far into the future. Well, if that's the case, Keir, why are you closing down the North Sea? We're just going to have to import all this oil and gas with much bigger implications for our carbon footprint and at much greater cost. I agree, Liam. I think it's shaping up now, having had this sort of net zero consensus, I think it's getting very interesting because we've talked before about a favourite phrase of mine, luxury beliefs. And I do think net zero is a pet project of the entitled classes. You know, people who like to feel good about themselves with a Tesla parked out the front of the house to signal the eco credentials and the Range Rover and a little run around around the back. And we are getting more and more emails, Liam, from Planet Normal listeners who run businesses, people who work on oil rigs, who are heating engineers. And these people have to live in the real world, not in Ed Miliband's windmills of your mind. Absolutely nonsensical and I think that hurrah for Gary Smith now I can recommend actually I've just been reading the um, guy who runs the GMB who was as you said was absolutely damning wasn't he and so articulate attacking Keir Starmer so articulate but also talking about stupid catastrophic stinker of a plan and it was going to be more imports which (laughs) which would be bad for the environment Uh, absolutely calamitous in terms of jobs so I think what we are seeing now is the practical, commonsensical people across the political spectrum really starting to stand up against this elitist nonsense and realising that net zero, while a desirable goal, is is going to take decades and decades. We Probably realistically, it will be the end of the century before we're even close to it. We need to end this section, Alison, with this by Noel Harrison. Like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon, like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face, and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space, like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, mine. I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street, Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Brendan O'Neill's the chief political writer for the website Spiked. He previously spent 15 years as Spiked editor. A regular contributor to The Spectator and The Daily Mail, the columnist Rod Little refers to Brendan as the best and funniest writer we have on the multiple insanities gripping the Western world. The Guardian, meanwhile, calls him a sub-Danny Dyer obnoxious intellectual wind-up merchant. (laughs) Brendan's latest book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, has just been published by the London Publishing Partnership. So we thought it'd be a good moment, Alison, to welcome him. Aboard the rocket of right thinking, the capsule of common sense, this, our planet normal, flying refuge of reasoned views. I started by asking Brendan, when it comes to all this woke stuff, all this cancel culture, wasn't he over-egging the argument a little bit? (laughs) Well, I have been known to over-egg things, if I'm going to be honest with you, but I think in this case, I don't think I am. And I do think there is a very anti-heresy atmosphere, by which I mean anyone who thinks differently or who goes outside of the elite consensus opinion on certain issues does often find themselves being hounded, harassed, no platformed from university campuses, sometimes even sacked from their jobs. There have been women in particular who've been sacked from their jobs or deprived of work because they dare to say that biological sex is real. And one of the points I make in the book is that 
if you live in an era in which it's even a risky business to say that only men have penises and that women don't, then you know that things have gone pretty far. So I do think there's an ugly atmosphere around open debate. We do need to challenge it. You and I got to know each other during lockdown. We weren't COVID deniers. We both agreed and accepted as Alison did and as you and your colleagues at Spike did that COVID was definitely a dangerous virus. But we were labelled lockdown deniers, weren't we? Because we were coming up with concerns about the collateral damage that lockdown was doing. Collateral damage that's now been absolutely stood up, if you like, confirmed by numerous studies, not least the latest study from scientists at John Hopkins University, one of the world's leading medical schools, and indeed Lund University in Sweden. The questioning of government policy, you write, was considered during lockdown as grave an affront to the expert class as the cries of those who said COVID itself isn't real, that it's all a scam-demic. That really resonated with me, and I'm sure it resonated with Alison and Planet Normal listeners, how the likes of us were criticised, dismissed as beyond the pale, simply for questioning the efficacy, the effectiveness, the wisdom of lockdown itself. Yeah, that's right. And I think the lockdown era, the way in which freedom of dissent and freedom of speech were crushed, essentially, in many ways. There were certain things you couldn't say on social media sites. You risked being blacklisted from Facebook if you criticized masks, for example, or if you were overly critical of locked certain lockdown policies. We know that the government here was essentially spying on people to make sure that they weren't saying problematic things about lockdown policies. So it was a very difficult time for people who wanted to express dissent about a government policy. That's what we need to remind ourselves of. And the point I make in the book is that critics of lockdown were lumped together with people who said that COVID doesn't exist. It's an invention. It's made up by Bill Gates, who just wants to inject us all with vaccines, or whatever their story was. We were all lumped together as deniers. I think it was a very good example of how bad things can get if you accept the tactics of demonization that are used by censors and illiberal people these days, because they will always seek to demonize people and shame them into silence. And they have certain words, and one of them is denier. If you criticize climate change alarmism, you're a climate change denier. If you criticize lockdown, you're a lockdown denier. The other one, of course, is phobe. If you are agitated by certain aspects of the transgender lobby, you're a transphobe. If you are not a huge fan of same-sex marriage, as many Christians aren't, you're a homophobe. If you criticize any aspect of Islam, you're an Islamophobe. So there's these constant tactics of demonization to depict people's ideas as not simply wrong or something we should discuss or something we should debate, but as beyond the pale unfit for public life. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I wrote this book to say, listen, we need to allow all views to have free expression in order that we can have an honest debate and work out what's the best way forward for society. I must say, I I find the use of the word denier as particularly outrageous, given that that word really became popular when used to describe people who hold disgusting views about the Holocaust, denying it even happened of course. And to elide historians who deny the Holocaust with people who are questioning, you know, lockdown or questioning how fast we transition to net zero, for instance, is absolutely outrageous to me. And on this question of climate change, there's a brilliant passage in the book where you describe how Agnes Sampson was hung and burnt at the stake in 1591 for climate change. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about climate change. Do you sense that something is shifting, Brendan? People like you and I, we don't question that it would be great to use less fossil fuels. We question the pace at which it happens. We delve into the science of how we need to do that, transition to electric vehicles and so on. But just for talking about the technical and pacing aspects of this massive shift in how we generate energy, we're called deniers, aren't we? Do you think Starmer is now coming up against the reality of climate change. Across Europe, it seems to me, a lot of industrialists, a lot of mainstream politicians now are questioning the pace at which we're moving towards climate change. The Labour leader is being attacked by the GMB and Unite, two massive unions, isn't he, for banning, as he says, Labour will, new investment in North Sea oil and gas. 
Yeah, I think something very interesting is happening. And I hope that what you've described, I hope that is happening. And I hope it happens more. I think what some people are recognising, whether the political class have recognised this yet, I'm not sure. But some people are recognising that there is a huge tension between the net zero agenda, the cult of net zero, as I call it, because it does have a pseudo religious feel to it. This idea that there will be an apocalypse in the year 2050, unless we all pay penance for our sins of industrial hubris and environmental degradation. I think some people are realising that that ideology crashes up against the interests of working people, the interests of the majority of society. So if you look at the Dutch farmers protest, for example, they're protesting against the potential closure of 3,000 farms in the Netherlands uh, in order to reduce nitrous oxide emissions. Or the truckers in Denmark are protesting because a new fuel tax is going to be slapped on them again in the name of net zero. And people forget that the Gilets jaunes protest in France, which lasted every weekend for a whole year, that started as an uprising against a green fuel policy that Macron imposed on the country and which hit the pockets of working people who don't live in Paris in particular. So a lot of tensions are emerging between some leaders in society who want to impose net zero very speedily without thinking about the consequences and ordinary people who are starting to say, hold on, this is going to make driving my car more expensive. This is going to potentially put me out of a job. This could make energy more expensive. This could really hit my pocket in a way that is unsustainable. So I want to see more of that kind of discussion. But the only way we can have that is if we're free to talk about these things. It's only through having the freest, most rigorous discussion possible that we can work out some of the serious dangers in the net zero drive and talk about what society more broadly really needs. Throughout the book, you talk about social media. You focus in particular on social media in Chapter 8, where you coin this paradox of hate as a curious fact you write that we live in societies that are preoccupied with policing and punishing hatred, and yet hatred abounds. It flourishes. Hatred is the lingua franca of social media. To what extent has social media fanned the flames of this atmosphere that is so anti-heretical? Yeah, I think it has played a big part. I'm always a bit reluctant to blame social media alone, but I definitely think it exacerbated trends that already existed in society. I mean, just one example, it makes it easier to form a mob. You don't even have to leave your home. You know, in the old days, you had to get dressed, put on your boots, light a pitchfork and walk down to the town square. You know, it was a bit of effort involved. These days, you can stay in your bedroom and you can join a virtual mob that is calling Kathleen Stock every name under the sun or demonizing Alison and, and you, for example, and other people that we know. So, you know, it, people get a kick from being part of those kinds of mobs. And it's very easy to do thanks to social media. It's such an interesting paradox to me that we have more anti-hate speech laws than ever, not only in society, but on university campuses, workplaces. And yet, public discussion feels more hateful than ever. If you look at the things that are said about someone like JK Rowling, or the things that are said about Tories, people on the right. I mean, the most venomous things are said about them. And the point I make there is that actually, I think the clampdown on so-called hatred or hate speech actually green lights hatred. Because what it does, it says that these people are beyond the pale. This woman, JK Rowling, is essentially a witch. So go for her, do anything you want. And it says that about quite a lot of people. So it, when we brand people as hateful, we actually greenlight the use of hatred against them. And I think that's one of the paradoxical and very toxic elements of our witch hunt feeling in our society, where we pretend to be progressive, we pretend to be politically correct, but actually we're often unleashing mobs to silence supposedly difficult people. You do talk about J.K. Rowling, don't you? Her crime is well known. She thinks women are not men. She thinks a man never becomes a woman, despite how many pills he pops or surgeries he undergoes. Her heresy is to understand biology. For that, she is insulted and threatened daily. The hatred for Rowling really is intense. She's branded a turf, which literally means trans-exclusionary radical feminist, but which really means subordinate, possibly hysterical woman who outrageously refers to refuses who outrageously refuses to bow before the ideology of transgenderism and of course on social media she is absolutely walloped but so are people like you and i brendan middle-aged white men we're called gammons 
aren't we? And it's incredible <laughs> to me that that phrase, as you taught me, goes all the way back to Edmund Burke in 1790 in Reflections on the Revolution in France, of course, the Irish-English political philosopher Edmund Burke. Learning will be cast into the mire and trodden down under the hooves of swinish multitude. <laughs> so gammon really became a phrase during the Brexit wars, didn't it? To what extent do you think the current political discourse, social media has caused it? To what extent do you think Brexit caused it too? Yeah, Brexit brought a lot of it to the surface. I think that's what happened amongst the elites, sections of the establishment. There's always been an element of contempt or distrust for ordinary people. There's always been an element of discomfort in trusting them to vote in elections. That, that does make certain parts of the establishment feel uncomfortable. But they kind of keep it under wraps or they keep it quite quiet or they dress it up in euphemisms normally. But after Brexit, it just exploded. And we saw the most extraordinary outburst of, I, I would call it class hatred, class disdain, uh, a visceral snobbery, a visceral anti-democracy in the, the Ramona elites and their efforts to overturn the votes of 17.4 million people. Working class communities were referred to as low information. They didn't know what they were voting for. As you say, they were called gammon. Gammon is pig. That's what it is. And so in, in that, I've got a chapter called Rise of the Pigs, where I draw the line from Edmund Burke's attack on the swinish multitude and, and, and the swines by which he means the kind of ordinary people who are a bit piggish. Uh, and you fast forward to the 2020s and you have supposed leftists and supposed liberals referring to ordinary people as gammon, which in some ways is even worse. At least pigs are alive, whereas gammon is just inanimate flesh. It even shocked me, and I've been writing about the tensions between sections of society for a very long time, but it even shocked me. And, uh, and I do often wonder how long it will take to repair political trust in this country after that such a shocking experience of a section of the elite trying to crush the votes of millions of people. That's an unforgivable crime against democracy. I'm glad they didn't get away with it, but I don't think many people out there will forget it too soon, what was almost done to their right to vote. But it seems the Lib Dems are doubling down. Joe Swinson had a disastrous result in the general election when she was leader on a manifesto to hold another referendum on Brexit. Now Lib Dem leader Ed Davies saying we don't even need another referendum. Under a Lib Dem government, Parliament would just take us back in to the European Union with no referendum. Absolutely astonishing. It is astonishing. And we talk about cancel culture a lot, but we rarely talk about what would have been one of the worst acts of cancellation of modern times, which would have been the cancellation of democracy. If the Lib Dems get their way, you know, if they, if they were to do that, that would represent the cancellation of democracy itself. And, you know, there's so much hypocrisy in these groups in society. You remember a couple of years ago, they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of some women getting the vote and working class men getting the vote. And then without blinking an eye, they went straight back to trying to void the votes of millions of working class men and millions of women. So it's just an extraordinary hypocrisy and they can't even see their own hypocrisy. But it's so important, I think, to defend not only freedom of speech, but also democracy these days and to recognise that they actually depend on each other. Let's talk a little bit at the end, Brendan, about you, your educational background, your, your socioeconomic background. We're from very similar parts of the world, aren't we? West of Ireland parentage, grew up in North London suburbs. How did you make it into high-end journalism? Because it strikes me there's so few people of our background who actually do. Yeah, and it's becoming harder and harder, I think. I came through in a very strange way, which is impossible for most people. So I started writing for Living Marxism magazine back in the 1990s, a very long time ago. I was involved in radical politics back then. So I was a kind of left-wing agitator, one of the good ones, I would say, certainly not a Corbynista type. And that's how I got into writing for Living Marxism, and then the rest of it kind of flowed from there. But you're right, it's increasingly difficult for people like us and people that who the kind of people we grew up with to get into journalism you know i grew up in burnt oak in northwest london in a large family in a council house my parents are from ireland in fact i've just last night came back from connemara to visit my parents and for people like that to get into the media 
is very difficult for a number of reasons. I think there are two reasons. Firstly, because you actually just need to have a lot of money uh, behind you in order to do the grunt work of being an intern for a couple of years or being the tea boy at some radio station or at some newspaper. Working class people don't have that time. They don't have that luxury. They need to start working and earning a living. So it's closed off to them in that sense. But there's another reason that's not talked about very often, which is that much of the media, particularly the liberal media, particularly the Guardian, the Independent, the BBC, I would say, and increasingly the Times, they're quite hostile to those sections of society. They look down their noses at those sections of society. They don't understand the communities that these people come from. They don't understand their values. They think they're all a bit backward, a bit stupid, too Brexity, probably unhealthy, bad parents. You know, we need a sugar tax to control their eating habits. We need other measures to stop them from saying or doing stupid things. I just think that there are probably some brilliant minds out there in the red wall parts of the country and working class parts of London, brilliant young men, brilliant young women who would be fantastic writers, but who can't cut through, firstly, because it's unaffordable. And secondly, because they probably look at the media and think, they don't want people like me there. It's such a shame. And I think the British media loses out enormously when it loses those voices. Well said, Brendan. And thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Thanks, Liam. So there he is, Alison, Brendan O'Neill. And as I said earlier, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, has just been published by the London Publishing Partnership. I must say, as Brendan and I were discussing there at the end of the interview, it really is a shame that more people like him are not in journalism because mm. I do feel our parents' generation, the generation before that, really intellectually gifted autodidacts like Brendan O'Neill would have been all over our media, shaping opinion, pushing forward arguments. And yet there are so few people like him now at the top end of journalism. I was fascinated to learn that he'd sort of cut his teeth as a Marxist. I mean, that's terribly interesting, isn't it? The intellectual journey he's been on. I'm certainly going to buy a copy of Brendan's book, Heretics Manifesto. I find him fantastic commentator, Liam, and I think listeners will have heard that sort of robust good sense. He was one of the people during the pandemic who, for me, I know we kept each other going, but he was one of the, he's like a kind of a really good handrail to hang on to when you've got a topic that's really concerning you or upsetting you. Brendan is always a great person to anchor you and bring you back to the real world. And I agree, as we've said many, many times, people from more normal backgrounds, not getting into those positions. I, I forget how many or how few national newspaper columnists went to a state school. There aren't very many of us. And that is very odd. And that doesn't mean that people from other backgrounds shouldn't be represented, but they are disproportionately dominant in journalism, because as Brendan says, you know, you just have to have money now to be able to take these unpaid internships, which are kind of child labour, aren't they, really? But no, he's fantastic and a real planet normal citizen, I think, in the fullest sense. Now onto our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read your thoughts. We had a fantastic reaction to Miranda's email last week about the breastfeeding support group where someone was told off for misgendering by using the term ladies, because as we know, it's not just <laughs> ladies who do breastfeeding, is it? I still can't believe that. <laughs> I mean, it would be funny if there weren't actually people... <sighs> telling people they couldn't call breastfeeding women ladies because, as we know, most of them are men, aren't they? Anyway, very interesting stories coming in this week from listeners. You'll have noticed, Liam, that Suella Braverman has been pushed back by the Department of Education in her bid to stop so many foreign students coming to the UK. It's something we've touched on on the podcast before, particularly concerns about the universities preferring higher fee-paying foreign students to kids from our own country. 
And I've had a few very fascinating responses to that. David says, I'm a lecturer at a major London university. We have a flagship undergraduate program. In the academic year 22-23, I was astonished to discover of the usual 140 intake, 66% was Chinese and there were only three British kids. The balance being made up of other Asian groups and a few Europeans who can afford the higher fees. There are several implications to this new student profile. One, language proficiency during COVID, the gold standard English test, couldn't cope with the move online. So they started to accept other language proficiency qualifications and the standards are no longer gold. Also, says David, it is quite common for students to cheat, a friend taking the test for them, etc. Number two, cultural groups. Despite coming to an international institution, the students stick to their own cultural groups. That doesn't just apply to the Chinese. It's across the board. This is hardening as the Cold War is developing, says David, very interestingly. Whole teams in group assessments are sticking to their own cultures. And he goes on to say that for research methods, this cultural isolation has lots of implications. Students conducting research in London amongst only Chinese students. He says, since I was having to dumb down the teaching and research outputs were subpar, I went to see our programme director. He confirmed that they were experiencing the same issues. The programme director had been to see the head of faculty to discuss the issue since it was impacting the quality and the university brand. They were advised that overseas students represent profit. The university has invested heavily in infrastructure, which needs to be paid down. In effect, our university is now a profit centre, moreover a profit centre, which is seeking to expand student numbers by over 2,000. And David concludes... I think you are on to something. There is the exclusion of British students. There's the geopolitics of training up our competitors, if not our enemies. There is also a severe upper middle class brain drain to the US now, with Eaton and Harrow seeing at least 20% of their students applying directly to the Ivy League. And next, Liam, just quickly backing that up, Lee says... I'm currently teaching MSCs at a Midlands University, cohort of 37 students, 10 Nigerians, one Saudi, the rest are Indian. Marking assignments, the standard of English is well below a GCSE pass. One Indian MSC student cannot even verbalise their dissertation proposal to me. He is going to subcontract it to an essay writer. So there's British higher education for you in all its glory. If you know anything about this, listeners, please do write in because I think the Telegraph could be doing an investigation into this. It sounds completely scandalous to me. This is from Denise. Dear Alison and Liam, how valedictory it must be for you to have seen the front pages of the Daily Telegraph yesterday and today pronouncing that lockdown saved a minimum number of lives compared to the as yet untold amount of damage elsewhere whilst publishing the picture of the brave activist Molly Kingsley. I'm convinced the only reason I'm not in prison for ABH, GBH or worse is because I didn't have a child of school age through that dark period. (laughs) What a stain on the country in general and a blight on the lives of those deprived children and their families in particular. The headline, says Denise, would be a cause for celebration for those such as your good selves to whom it was blindingly obvious that the effects of lockdown would be worse than COVID itself if it were not for the knowledge that recovery from the effect of the egregious state control suffered by the entire population will take years, if at all. I've been with you since episode one. I never miss an edition of Planet Normal. Keep it up. Thank you, Denise. Fantastic. This is from Steve. Reading Alison's comments in today's Telegraph about gongs being awarded for the most enthusiastic and totally wrong proponents of lockdown put me in mind of a joke that used to be commonplace within the engineering world. The six stages of a major project. One, enthusiasm. Two, disillusionment. Three, panic. Four, the search for the guilty. Five, punishment of the innocent. (laughs) Six, rewards for those who took no part. Please, Sashange, please keep up the good work in your Telegraph columns and, of course, on Planet Normal. Thanks for that, Steve. Punishment of the innocent. (laughs) (laughs) Rewards for those who took no part. 
deputy heads must roll. This is from Craig. <laughs> Dear Alison and Liam, I'm an Englishman abroad. Greece for the last 30 years, long story. And would just like to communicate my thanks to you both. Although I've had the honour of actually being followed by Alison on Twitter. God, she doesn't Ooh. even follow me. And as such, could message you my thanks via that medium. I've stopped using that platform for the last couple of years for the sake of my own sanity. Alison, I don't know how you deal with the bar directed at you. I really don't. So email, it is. I've been a privileged passenger on your rocket since the early days of liftoff and my Thursday afternoons wouldn't be the same now without smiling at Alison's lovely sounding... Hello. Hello. And I'm sure I'm not on my own when I say that your podcast has given this listener every emotion on the spectrum ranging from despair to hilarity to everything in between. In particular... Your interview with the incredibly courageous John Chappell mm. has moved me into communicating my gratitude for the way you both handle these dreadfully sad situations with eloquence and real humanity. When you revealed that sufficient money had been raised to allow John to pay for treatment in Germany, I have to confess, I fist pumped a get in and shed a tear oh. at the knowledge that he has a fighter's chance. Over the last three years of listening to Planet Normal, and this is, Alison, our 150th episode. Hey! Over the last three years of listening to Planet Normal, there have been many... See, I buried the lead, as ever. There have been many other occasions <laughs> where your professionalism and kindness has restored again and again my at-times wavering belief in genuinely good people looking to tell the stories that need to be heard. Your questioning of all things lockdown served as a support during a time when I feared, and still do actually fear, for my children's future. I look forward to boarding the rocket and the solace that there are thousands of fellow passengers just as happy as I am for an hour spent in the company of two truly decent human beings. Well, maybe. <laughs> Thank you both, Craig. P.S. It's pronounced nosokomiu, like oh. from the Greek word for hospital, from o sole mio. Don't at me, don't at me. Nosokomiu. <laughs> I'm so proud about knowing that word. <laughs> By the way, to everyone, thanks again for your huge generosity to John Chapel, John's fighting fund to try and um, find some better treatment for his cancer now stands at over £125,000, which is wonderful. And you know, he says, I'm supposed to be a writer, but I'm lost for words. Uh, everybody's kindness, it has genuinely given me hope, something I haven't had for a long time. And new listeners catch up with the interview last week with John. Absolutely amazing stuff. Yes, and you can still find his GoFundMe page. We'll put the details in the show notes. Emily says, reacting to my rant about Dame Jacinda Ardern, so many of us who disagree with the patent nonsense being peddled during the second project fear, driven by charlatans such as Professor Where's My Trousers Ferguson, have every reason to feel entirely disillusioned and despairing. I hadn't realised just how many of the mad, bad and dangerous to have in authority over us have been rewarded with honours, while those such as Professor Gupta, a woman of enormous good sense and courage, have been vilified and humiliated. Alison's summary of Jacinda Ardern's crimes against her citizens and her sickening toadying to China was especially succinct. There are so many thousands of non-COVID dead as a result of this hysterical blundering and wicked incompetence and self-promotion and aggrandisement who have no voice save yours and the too few other brave journalists like you. Please keep up the good work. And this is from Gareth. If I were king with medieval powers, then Salim Halligan, Marquis of Essex, Woo! would be my Chancellor of the Exchequer. Baroness Pearson, I want to be Dame Allison. Baroness Pearson would be Communications Director. Sir Carl and Dame Sinetra would be my medical advisors. Molly Kingsley, OBE, would be in charge of child welfare at schools across the realm and also asked if she would like to become one of my mistresses. I'll pass that on, <laughs> Gareth. Your luck's in, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Hancock would spend the rest of his days cleaning the toilets at a cancer clinic. Too bloody true. And if Peter Daszak, he was one of the prime scientists, movers, wasn't he? if Peter Daszak were to set foot in the kingdom, then his head would be on a spike by the following sundown. Excellent suggestions, Gareth. Thank you. And on that medieval bombshell, that's it from Planet <laughs> Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's my turn. And I think it should be Denise. Yes. Denise, great to have you 
emailing us your regular correspondence planet normal you have now won a planet normal mug email us at planet normal at telegraph.co.uk give us your postal address put in the email subject heading mug winner and a rarest rocking horse blue planet normal mug will wing its way towards you Listeners might like to know that there's a special dinner on Friday for a little group of the uh, rebellious women, and that includes Molly Kingsley, uh, your co-pilot here, Shanetra Gupta, Laura Dodsworth, Julia Hartley Brewer, and the special guest. This week, we are allowing in a person with a penis, which is unprecedented, but it is Liam Halligan. Because I am a woman. You can identify as what you like, darling. Anyway, if you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They very much cheer us up. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitz, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.